This is PodBridge. Connecting the U.S., the Middle East, and the world. Welcome, and thank you for joining another episode of PodBridge. Each week, each episode, our goal is to explore issues of common interest to the United States, the Middle East, and the world. For nearly four months now, corona has paralyzed countries and severely tested economies. Flights were grounded, roads are empty, restaurants and stores are closed, even sports got turned off. It's going to be a long road to recovery, but it feels like this restart is already underway. What will this recovery look like? How quickly will it unfold? Who's going to bounce back? Who's not going to bounce back? What areas of the economy are never going to be the same again? Here to help us answer some of these questions are two very dear friends of mine. Khaldun Mubarak is the CEO of Mubadla, a global investment company and sovereign wealth fund based in Abu Dhabi. He comes from a family of diplomats, jurists, educators. He studied economics and business at Tufts University in Boston. And a little known fact is Khaldun actually started his career in the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company before launching Mubadla back in 2002. David McCormick has an equally impressive CV. He's the CEO of Bridgewater Associates, which is an asset and management and investment firm, but it's actually the largest hedge fund in the world. And David's journey to Bridgewater is very interesting. He started off as a West Point graduate and a U.S. veteran who served in the first Gulf War as a former Army Ranger. He's an academic with a PhD from Princeton. And David and I first met when he was in the Treasury Department in the George W. Bush administration. So these are two very impressive resumes belonging to two amazing guys who happen to be running two world-class institutions. So let's get right into it. Khaloun, I've known you for almost 20 years. You started Mubadla in 2002. Tell us a little bit about the journey, like how it materialized Mubadla's latest sort of accomplishments, and tell us a little bit about how you forecast the future. So from the past to the present, from the present to the future. So I've been uh, obviously involved with Mubadala since, the, uh, since its inception in 2002. So it's been almost an 18-year uh, journey. And to start um, a sovereign fund for the government of Abu Dhabi, uh, to start you know, with the first investment, the second investment, and, and then really grow, uh, grow this, um, this fund over the last 18 years to now a um, uh, $230 billion plus uh, institution. Uh, it's been, you know, immensely rewarding. Um, we've done that uh, and we've learned over the years. I've learned, of course, uh, a lot. Uh, it's um, today, I would say, Mubadala, has gone from a very um, specifically driven uh, oil and gas investor, which was the, the inception, to a, uh, an investment institution with a diverse portfolio in you know, over 18 sectors uh, with you know, investments in over 50, 60 countries around the world uh, and with a very... Um, uh, I would say, impressive group of employees uh, all over the world uh, that I'm very proud of. It's been a great journey. Uh, I'm very happy uh, what has been accomplished, but to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm more excited about the future. Uh, I think the future is, is very exciting. 
Uh, we've built the right foundation. We've, re- we've built the right platforms uh, to build on. Uh, we've got a strong uh, management team, you know, very, very uh, talented and capable uh, management team. And, you know, we've been, I hope, and I have the, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of confidence in that, we've been, you know, built for this kind of situation, which is, you know, a challenging environment globally, uh, a lot of experience, a diversified portfolio, uh, a strong uh, liquid position, and, and, and really an ability to think long-term and invest with a long-term uh, view. So this environment we're in right now, that's where, uh, you know, that's what I've been you know, looking forward to for many, many years. David, we met when you were at the Treasury Department with Secretary Paulson in the George Bush administration. Did you ever imagine yourself running a company like Bridgewater? And give us a little of sense of how you went from there to here. I don't think I would have imagined um, uh, running Bridgewater when I was at the Treasury. But as, as you remember from those days, I, I remember a dinner that the three of us had in Abu Dhabi uh, during the financial crisis in, in 2008 with, uh, uh, with Secretary Paulson and uh, His Royal Highness. And I don't think we, any of us were really thinking much ahead of other than surviving, uh, surviving the moment because it was, uh, it was a very fearful time. Uh, but, but Bridgewater's been, um, you know, just an amazing privilege uh, for me coming, coming out of the treasury. And, and one of the things that I think uh, Haldun and I share is that what, what a privilege it is to be responsible for an organization where your primary job is really understanding what's going on in the world and then trying to take advantage of that understanding in a way that benefits, uh, benefits your investors and your, um, and, and your key constituents. And so to, have, to be able to be in a position like we both were in 2008, but now to this day, uh, where that's the assignment is, um, is a great opportunity. Um, my situation is a, a, a bit different than Haldun's in that I joined uh, a firm that had been around for about 30 years. And one of the primary goals of me coming was to help uh, Ray Dalio with a founder transition. And that is, um, you know, that is a particularly challenging thing because you have this, you know, amazing entrepreneur who built something very special. Haldun will have this challenge in front of him someday is to transition to the next generation. And how do you make that happen successfully where you turn into an institution, but maintain the essence and the culture and the entrepreneurial spirit that made the business successful in the first place? So, so we're in the middle of that, or I guess more towards the end of that. And that's, um, that's been also a great challenge. And, and now we both face, I think, uh, the opportunity to lead in a very um, uh, disjointed and chaotic world. And, um, and for people that are in our business, that offers great opportunity, but it off- also offers great peril. So it's a great leadership challenge to, to try to do our best to navigate that. So, so let me follow up on that, David. I mean, you and Khaldun both basically for a living analyze and look at investment opportunities. With this much uncertainty around the world, around markets, around trade, around currencies, what do you look for when you are evaluating an investment opportunity? Are you looking for rule of law? Are you looking for growth? What, what are the criteria that you use to judge investments for? Well, this, this period is, is really unprecedented. We, we're in the process of going through a, a fundamental paradigm shift uh, that really happened before Corona because uh, we were at a, a, over a period of extended government intervention with quantitative easing and 
what came out of 2008. And what's happened with Corona is that that process has been accelerated. And so what we face is a world where there's a huge range of potential outcomes. You can imagine a scenario where it's a Japan-like deflation uh, for the developed world, or you can imagine a 1970s stagflation. And so for investors, um, it's an enormously uh, challenging time. Uh, When we think about investing, we think about it in terms of the strategic portfolio. So what assets you're going to hold um, in some sort of balance, what portfolio you're going to hold to try to get the risk premium on assets. In other words, you're not taking active bets, you're holding assets. And, uh, and that's hard to do in this environment because usually diversification is a key driver of, of good returns there. And with zero interest rates and, and, and bond yields, what they are, it's much harder to achieve the balance uh, that investors have typically been able to, to achieve. On the active side, what we call alpha, where you're actively investing and taking active bets, um, it's, you know, I think the, the key watchword to start with would be humility because there's so much uncertainty. But this is also a time where um, people who understand the world well, investors, macro investors, should have enormous opportunities because you see huge divergences across com- countries based on how the virus has played out based on the government intervention that's taken place, based on the underlying fundamentals of their economies. So there's huge divergences. And so, you know, we're hopeful and and optimistic that our understanding of capital flows and our understanding of how government policies affect the real economy uh, will give us an advantage and be able to take opportunistically um, bets in key places, uh, but with the humility that will come from a broad diversification because, um, it's very hard to have a huge amount of confidence in any one bet, uh, given the range of outcomes. Khaldun, what's Mubadal looking at when you're looking at opportunities? I just saw that you guys made an investment in India. You're in sectors that Mubadala was never in from the beginning. So what is it you, you use to judge? So I remember that meeting that, that Dave was um, uh, uh, talking about earlier, back in um, 2008, 2009. Uh, with, with 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 David, uh, with Hank, uh, His Highness the Conference, and, and and both of us, Yusuf, me and you, and and that was a very difficult time. That was a very difficult time, and um, and I remember uh, very clearly how looking um, a week, sorry, a, a month ahead, let alone six months ahead, uh, was was a massive challenge. We just didn't know. Uh, how things were going to play out. Um, but this is different. This time around, what makes this challenge different is that it's really unprecedented. Uh, you know, we've gone through 0809. We've gone through oil crisis, uh, at least uh, the impact that would have on uh, on the UAE and um, and particularly an investment institution like, like Mubadala with its energy exposure. We've, we've gone through these various oil and gas um, corrections. Um, financial crisis, uh, political instability, geopolitical uh, challenges around the region. So we've, we've seen all that. COVID is, is brought something, a whole new thing here because um, the challenges this puts forward is across everything. It's across the board. And the reality with COVID is regardless how this is going to play out, um, and, and how long this will last, uh, six months, a year, 18 months, 24 months, whatever assumption you buy into, whatever 
um, scenario, uh, a recession scenario, a, a soft landing, a, a V curve, a U curve, a depression, etc., and all these scenarios. The way out is going to be different than the way in. The world will change. One thing COVID uh, unquestionably, in my view, uh, has done is that it, it has changed the world. Um, there are sectors that are going to be um, probably dying, if not dead. There are sectors that are going to limp their way out of this. And there are sectors that are going to come out very, very strong. Um, and that's, I think, reality. And that is completely COVID-related. I mean, these are, are fundamental changes that will happen from a macro perspective uh, globally. So here, as you navigate through that, I think that the first thing we've had to do is, is really sit back uh, in a prudent and careful and cautious way and really rebuild uh, uh, our convictions about the future. Rebuild, and I say rebuild, because we've had convictions, we had views in terms of sectors, in terms of regions, in terms of areas, uh, pre-COVID. We've had to essentially stress test all of that and then come up with a new thesis and with new convictions uh, that we have to believe in uh, of where this world is going uh, from here and, uh, and, and really consolidate a strong institutional view uh, of where uh, the convictions we are prepared to, to essentially bet on uh, in the future. And that was not easy. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about unprecedented times. We're not, there's no textbooks to this. You really have to, you know, you know, you know investigate, study, and, and, and really firm, uh, firm your views, uh, both uh, in an educated way, but also with, with tangible uh, uh, evidence that you, you, you buy into. I think one area that, that is clear to us, which we had pre-COVID, uh, is, the, is that technology space. The technology space, if anything, uh, COVID is, is, is supercharging uh, that move into that, into that uh, spectrum. And we as Mubadara were, were, were very traditional investors in the past in terms of the sectors we're in. Uh, what we've started doing over the last couple of years is in, expand our, our um, exposure towards technology in all its uh, aspects. Um, and what we found in, uh, in COVID is we have even further convictions within that space uh, that I find myself more and more committed to and I find, and you'll see us as mobile that are more and more investing in. Um, so spaces like, um, you know, med tech, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, life sciences, uh, all within that, uh, you know, e-commerce. Uh, all bets we've done in the past, a lot of, but I think we'll be doing a lot more of because we feel uh, these convictions, obviously, uh, in, 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 in a prudent way, uh, stand. So you both touched on the financial crisis of 2008. We both talked about the dinner in 2008 with Secretary Paulson and the Crown Prince. By the way, if anyone's wondering, that dinner was at the seafood restaurant in Emirates Palace. Uh, I remember exactly where we were sitting. But you both operate in both government and in the private sector space. Are there any lessons learned from 2008 that we need to sort of 
incorporate, think about? Is there something that we went through that we can benefit from? And not necessarily from an investment point of view, but maybe from a regulation point of view. But is since all of us have the scars from 2008, um, are, is there something we're missing in how we navigate the corona? Uh, well, maybe a, maybe a thought on that. Uh, I'd say t- two, two reflections on 2008 that I think are relevant t- to today. Um, you know, looking back, one of the things I admire most about Secretary Paulson uh, in their response was that uh, when you're in a crisis like this, you have to iterate very quickly. You have to experiment. You have to make decisions. You have to get the, the evidence of how those decisions are playing out and then adjust. And so that was one of the things he did, uh, I thought, quite well. If you remember back to the TARP and how that was initially conceived and then, um, you know, the congressional uh, vote down of that and then uh, ultimately how that evolved, that program became very, very successful, I, I believe, in many ways. But it didn't uh, end the way it started in terms of the conception. And if you think about what's happening in the government today, um, in the U.S., at least, there's been an enormous response, order, many orders of magnitude larger uh, and more rapid than anything that happened in 2008. And when you're doing making decisions of that magnitude that quickly, they will be imperfect. Um, the programs will be imperfect. There will be unforeseen um, challenges. Uh, and, and it will take agility and a willingness to confront um, the mistakes and make iterative changes uh, to be able to have those policies be successful over time. And so um, I think we've got to give our policymakers, both in Congress and the administration in the U.S. and around the world, some grace in the way that they move quickly to try to avert a crisis, but then also the need and the responsibility of them to evolve those policies in ways that address whatever gaps they may have. That, that's one key takeaway. So I think we'll continue to hear criticisms and weaknesses of some of the policy responses, and that should be expected and they need to make changes as, as uh, that data comes in. The second thing is that um, there, you know, we're in an unfortunate set of circumstances, as we were in 2008, where you have to have an enormous government intervention. One should not think that that doesn't have second and third order consequences. And so uh, in 2008, one of the consequences was that um, uh, the period that followed, that decade that followed, was one of the greatest periods in the last 100 years to hold assets because of the enormous amount of quantitative easing that was flowing into the markets. And, um, and so it's been an, a, a terrific 10 years if you were a holder of assets. Um, it's also not been a terrific 10 years if you weren't a holder of assets. And so one of the byproducts of that is an enormous growing gap um, in wealth and income around the world and in the United States in particular that is in part a byproduct of those policies. And, um, you know, if you could do it over again, there may have been some things that you would have done differently, but none of these kinds of government interventions are without a subsequent cost. In our current circumstance, what's happening is an enormous amount of government intervention that will distort markets in foreseen ways and unforeseen ways, and also have created an enormous set of IOUs for the future. And, um, and so one of the things that I've been contemplating is as we get through this crisis and return to normal, and we can talk what the new normal might be, um, there will be a whole new set of challenges that, that policymakers and businesses will face as a result of the distortions that have been created and the obligations that have been created by these government policies. 
And so uh, dealing with that in a, in a candid and forthright way um, is a really important part of working our way through what follows uh, as we transition out of COVID because it's going to be a very challenging environment in, in different ways. Khalun? Yeah. I think uh, I agree with David. Um, certainly, I think one of the big lessons, uh, and you've seen that with the overwhelming uh, move, particularly in the United States, with the way the U.S. government has reacted, um, I think that's, that's been one of the big learnings from, uh, from the previous 2008, 2009. And, and you've seen how the markets have been, uh, have been um, stabilized over the last couple of months. I mean, given the magnitude of what we're dealing with, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable when you look at it. I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, um, pros and cons uh, overall with where, where you see the markets at. But in reality, it could have been so much worse if it wasn't for uh, the quick and overwhelming uh, reaction that we've seen uh, from uh, governments like the United States and, and others uh, that have moved very quickly and, and quite effectively. I agree. I mean, th these will have ramifications, uh, no doubt, long term. But, uh, but I think in the short to medium term, uh, no doubt in my mind, uh, they have really, really stabilized and, 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 and prevented what could have been um, a disastrous situation globally. Um, I think there's a, another thing I would say that we've learned over the years um, that I hope I'm concerned about is, is this move towards uh, protection and, uh, and that move away from globalization. Uh, I think there are, again, that's another highly debatable point. Uh, what we've learned here is uh, what I would ad advocate is, is certainly uh, there is a need for some basic uh, requirements. Uh, I'll take a country as the UAE as, as, as an example, so I'll just speak for the UAE, from the UAE perspective. What we've learned here is, uh, be it on food security, be it on uh, some of medical supplies, uh, you know, critical equipment that we needed, uh, there is unquestionably a need to have um, domestic production, domestic capacity, uh, in order for us to, to handle such an unprecedented situation uh, much better, because what we've seen is, you know, massive disruption in supplies and in terms of trade routes. Uh, this disruption has created a lot of challenges. Um, to avoid that, there needs to be a base of uh, domestic production, uh, particularly in these two aspects. I would say in the medical side and on the um, healthcare, sorry, on the uh, food food security side, that I think are very important for countries. Uh, to, to certainly prepare for any future situations like the ones we've, we've dealt with. But that also applies to some critical equipment. Uh, one of the lessons we've learned in this COVID crisis is um, you need to have uh, a level of domestic um, security, uh, ultimately for critical industries, so that you don't get put in a situation uh, and I think that's very, you know, important, particularly in a country like uh, the science of the United States and many European countries, uh, where they found critical supplies challenged in, 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 a, in a critical situation. Now that, I will caveat with my continuation of this, the, the, this argument I'm trying to make here is that that's important, but we shouldn't go overboard with that. You know, uh, I, I'm not against globalization. I'm actually all for it. I think it's very important that we 
we are able to balance between maintaining a certain level of globalization that brings efficiency, that brings trade, that brings, I think, geopolitical stability uh, and economic uh, balance with, you know, uh, a clear domestic strategy that meets uh, basic uh, critical requirements uh, for any country to have uh, in order to avoid uh, some of the challenges that we see, uh, what we've seen uh, over the last couple of months. And to help make your point for you, a perfect example of what you're talking about is how a company called Strata, which manufactures airplane components in Alain, was retooled with you and Honeywell in order to produce N95 masks. And you did it very quickly and you did it very efficiently because at a time where you don't need to produce aircraft components, you need to produce N95 masks. So that was a perfect example of sort of being able to adapt to the corona needs. But you both you gave... Sorry to interrupt you. It's a great example you used here in, you know, pivoting and, and, and you know, taking an industry that's a, that's a company that manufactures, comp, manufactures composites for, uh, uh, for the air, uh, aerospace industry. And to, you know, be able to pivot and, and, and address a need, uh, a critical need within 30 days of um, uh, medical supplies, and in this case, N95 masks. However... Let me give you the, 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 what, what went behind this three days. It was an absolute nightmare. Uh, so I'll give you, just to give you, what I, because it explains my previous point with this example of moving and bringing um, Honeywell uh, machinery into the UAE uh, for critical medical supplies uh, in a critical time. In a normal world, you would purchase that machinery from Honeywell and you would get it delivered within a, you know, a period of time. And if you want it faster, you're going to pay for it more. And, you know, it's the, it's the usual commercial world we live in. What we had to deal with was, number one, getting these machines into the country from their uh, manufacturing uh, units. Honeywell had uh, this equipment uh, made, uh, well, they had in the U.S. and in China, among other countries, but mainly U.S. and China. We couldn't get it out of the U.S. We couldn't get it out of China. We had to lobby and help Honeywell. And ultimately, uh, we needed, I mean, I had to intervene and, and, and really take all kinds of favors just to get the equipment out to be delivered to us. Once we resolve that, there are chemical, um, uh, let's say, um, residues that are used in that manufacturing uh, process. Same problem. To get it out of India, impossible. To get it out of the U.S., impossible. I mean, real, really. I mean, we're talking about manufacturing masks. And we had to go run around, lobby. I mean, again, I threw every favor I had in the book uh, at a GDG level just to get simple uh, mask residue uh, to manufacture these masks. So, I mean, these, this machinery wasn't very expensive. It's pretty straightforward to get it up and running. But I cannot describe to you how challenging it was 
to get the machinery and to get the uh, residue in place to, to manufacture something as simple as masks. That's the environment we, we were living in. And that's the challenge if we move towards a world of protectionism and restrictions when it comes to uh, a movement of, uh, of products and, and movement of, of trade. You, you both led me into the next area I want to cover. And, and I know we're a little over time, so I want to move quick on my last few questions. But I'm sitting in Washington and I'm watching the two biggest and most important economies in the world, the United States and China, get into a much more confrontational posture vis-a-vis each other. You two are running, again, multi-billion dollar investment operations. How does that geopolitical climate affect your investment decisions and how you deal with both the U.S. and China, where it's, I mean, I can safely say this, it is developing into a new Cold War between the United States and China. How do you look to deploy capital in that environment? David, why don't you go first? Well, I think, um, as you say, Yusuf, uh, the U.S.-China relationship is is the really the defining global relationship of our our lifetimes. It has huge geopolitical implications, has huge economic implications, uh, and what's happening is uh, is that that relationship's evolving, um, both politically and substantively, in ways that um, creates uh, r- real risk, uh, but I think but I think also opportunity and. Uh, I suspect, um, you know, if, if it's well managed, we will uh, transition to a world where where the United States is a strategic competitor uh, to China on key areas, key emerging technologies, um, everything from five G to AI to quantum sciences. Um, we'll we'll cooperate in certain areas that are of uh, global public goods, climate change, North Korea, things like that will not be resolved without the partnership of the United States and China, and they'll have to find a way to do that. And then there'll be areas of fundamental difference um, uh, where we will have conflicting perspectives and ideas. And, um, and so that's one world that could evolve. There's other worlds that could evolve, but that's, that's one world. And of course, um, the challenge is if you're a global investor, you really can't not hold China in your portfolio if China is a, you know, a huge part of global growth and so forth. And so um, that's the, essentially the way that we've thought about it as we've dealt with our strategic partners is that uh, we've tried to give them advice and through our own efforts, uh, found ways to give them access to China's markets as a diversifying theme. But ultimately, if, uh, if the uh, circumstance evolves in a much more com- combative way, it puts real risk not just on investments, but then the global economy as a whole, because that relationship is such a driver of global growth. It, it has to be managed with, to state the obvious, with great care and sophistication, even as we recognize that it's moved to a new stage of competitive, competitiveness and, you know, kind of great power competition. Alun? Yeah. So echoing uh, David's words here, um, at the end of the day, these are the two largest economies in the world. Uh, world uh, economic growth is dependent really on a certain level of stability uh, between the United States and China and between these two countries continuing to uh, to grow uh, in a sustainable and uh, uh, an attractive way. There is no doubt there's a lot of issues and we, you know, we don't have time to go over the issues. 
between them. And it's not really, you know, I'm looking at it from a, from a, from a global investor, investor perspective. From a global investor perspective, uh, our interest is um, balance. Our interest is uh, sustainability. Our, our interest is uh, collaboration, a collaborative approach. Uh, we don't, you know, you know, instability that doesn't make, it's not good business for anyone. Uh, stability is. Uh, so uh, wherever the United States and China can land in terms of a, a stable uh, trade relationship, uh, a, straight, a stable political relationship uh, that allows growth uh, to continue and allows the world to, uh, to essentially benefit from these two, uh, the two largest economies in the world, you know, that's what I would say is, is, is where we would all want it to land or where we would want it to land for sure. Uh, today, the U.S. represents the largest share of our investment FDI in the world. Uh, it will always be. The U.S. market is a, is a, is a very mature market, is a very attractive and lucrative market. And, and we've been, you know, very happy investing in the United States for, for years and years. And we'll continue to do that. And the U.S. is, is at the heart of innovation and will continue you know, given where I started in terms of our emphasis towards technology and innovation, the U.S. will always be a priority market to us. But China is also very interesting. It's a very interesting market. We've been investing in it uh, over the last couple of years, and, and we're finding interesting spaces, even in that space, in the innovation space. Uh, and, and certainly, as Mubadala, we would like to continue to operate in the way we have operated, which is in a very purely commercial sense, uh, looking at attractive places to invest and, and with a stable growth prospect uh, and hopefully with a stable growth prospect underlying a, um, a stable U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, it's always healthy when the two giants are working together as opposed to working against each other. Uh, smaller countries like the UAE often get stuck in the middle and it uh, becomes a very unhealthy dynamic. But the way things look here in the, region, in the U.S. right now, it's, I think we're we're on a dangerous trajectory between the U.S. and China. Um, we live in a world where everything is polarized. And one of the things that gets polarized in the conversation is globalization. If you've benefited from globalization, globalization is the greatest invention and the greatest phenomenon in the world. If you have not benefited from globalization, it's the single worst thing and the source of all our problems. For you guys, how does it look? And again, give me your macro perspective on how globalization can benefit the world economies and the investment climate. Uh, Khaldun, why don't you take first crack at this? You know, you know where I stand on this, Yusuf. I'm, I'm always a big advocate of globalization. Uh, I think globalization is, um, has been, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, pros that we can talk about, but there are some challenges that come with globalization. I think an adjusted approach towards globalization, taking into some of the, uh, the challenges we've seen in the past, uh, you know, be it COVID, be it, uh, um, you know, in, in the larger markets in terms of job creation, et cetera. I think there needs to be a balance. Uh, I would say it has to be uh, globalization uh, with, a, with a caveat. Uh, th that's where I would advocate, I think, uh, in terms of moving forward. David, how does it look for Bridgewater? Yeah, I, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, my views on this have evolved a bit. Um, the caveat part that Haldun says, if, he, if you'd have uh, talked to me in 2007, 2008, um, 
it would have been a less nuanced view. And I think um, the benefits of globalization for the global economy, for our individual countries, are beyond dispute uh, for, for the world and has brought many parts of the world out of poverty. Um, but, there's, but there's three caveats that I would add, uh, or three aspects of the caveat that, uh, that Haldun mentioned. One would be the supply chain piece that uh, uh, Haldun spoke about, which is we're learning uh, through COVID and other things that uh, there needs to be particular aspects of the manufacturing base, the, the food supply, uh, the pharmaceutical supply chain, whatever it is that creates enough uh, independence and autonomy to assure uh, the necessary resources in a time of crisis. Uh, that's one. The second is um, some of these emergent technologies that I spoke of have particular, as I said, AI, quantum science, so forth, have particular geopolitical winner-take-all implications, and they have to be treated with, um, I think, a, a different uh, uh, model uh, in terms of how we think about investing and building the right alliances uh, to support those. And then the third, and I'll be very brief, is that while um, the, the overall benefits of globalization are indisputable, uh, it's been very uneven. And one of the challenges we face, not only have not all boats risen equally, some boats haven't risen at all as a consequence, and some have been sunk as a consequence of globalization. So when we think about that, we have to think about government policies that are easing the disruption and supporting um, the losers in the game of globalization and helping them be become part of the digital economy going forward. And so I think um, that's the way to respond to some of the emotion and some of the conflict and consternation that has evolved from globalization um, to make it more palatable going forward. And for both of you, my last question is simple. What is the one thing, what is the one lesson you've both learned during this four months of lockdown that you've actually internalized and, and, and benefited from? What's the one lesson learned for you, David, and for you, Khaldun? Well, I, I think we're still very much learning, but, um, but uh, as Haldun started with his learning from the, uh, the, the uh, video conferencing, I think that could be expanded to, to uh, say that in times of conflict, uh, tension, pressure, um, the capacity, the human capacity to innovate um, is remarkable. And uh, those innovations are happening in so many different ways that I don't think um, in, in any good ways will return to normal. And, um, and it's, it's sort of interesting to ask yourself the question, well, some of the things I'm learning, why couldn't I have learned them without having to go through the crisis of COVID? And why wasn't I pushing the envelope on my embedded assumptions? And, and the capacity of the human spirit to adapt and, uh, and make sense of, a, of, a, of very chaotic circumstances um, for the betterment of, of individuals, for companies, for society is, is really remarkable. And so while it's such a, a tough and dire time, I mean, if there's anything to take optimism in, it's the way that our, our individuals, our companies, our countries are evolving uh, to meet this challenge. And I think there's a lesson there for the future. Yeah, I, I think more than anything, the half, the, the, the glass of water half full. We got to keep thinking half full. You know, at many times, and I think many of you will share with me, uh, you know, David, Yusuf, you'll share with me. There are times over the last couple of months where, you know, you wake up in the morning and it's just bad news after bad news after bad news and, and, and challenge after challenge and problems. And, and, you're, and you're thinking, 
you know, there, there's no way out of this. The reality is, and I think you, you've, we've all lived it over the last couple of months, and for me, that's the biggest thing that I remind myself every day when I'm, I'm dealing with challenges here is, you know, we live in a, in a completely different world right now. You, innovation, technology, uh, you know, whatever it is, you've, you've seen how fast things when it comes to vaccines, uh, treatment, uh, testing, everything has evolved so quickly. Uh, what we knew uh, four months ago is different than what we knew three months ago is different than what we know today. And it's not years. It's, it's now a matter of days, hours. Things are changing so fast. So keeping a, an optimistic, uh, open mind uh, towards the future, um, you know, not saying anything is impossible. You know, in the work environment, things you thought could not be done sitting at home are being done. Uh, things that you thought required... Uh, 20 people to do them can be done with four and five and you're seeing it. So, you know, I think the biggest thing I've learned is keep an open mind, stay positive and, uh, and, and just play the game every day. Things are evolving so fast. Uh, don't allow yourself to be stuck in a, in a corner uh, with a, with a limited tunnel in front of you. Couldn't agree more, more with both of you. Like, I, I believe that we will adapt. We will overcome. And when people ask me what, how things are going, I'm like, we're going to figure it out and we'll get through it. And when we get through it, I have a feeling that we'll get through it in better shape than when we came in. You have to keep that outlook and you have to believe that you can overcome these problems. And I feel that that's where the three of us are. And I'm sure that's where your institutions are. But I, I really wanted to thank both of you for being here. And as we were talking, I, I realized that this is our second global crisis that we are navigating together. <laughs> and as much as I love both of you and I think the world of you, I hope that we don't have to navigate a third one together. This is our last. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I hope we get through this, as I believe, stronger on the other side. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for being with us today. Thank you to both of you. Great to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you, Khalil. And uh, Dave, great to see you. Great to see you. Thank bye you, bye guys. guys. Thanks. Take care. This has been PodBridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the PodBridge project, follow us on Twitter at UAEUSA United or visit our website at podbridge.com.